Yeah, I was in Uppsala for about three weeks. Did you know that there's actually was an idea that Atlantis was in Uppsala? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, a Swedish historian in the 17th century felt that uh, Atlantis was Vikings in Uppsala. Hmm. Interesting. I saw no evidence of it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... I'm Kim Plomp. I am a bioarchaeologist. I study the human skeleton, health and disease, and evolution. And I'm Frederick Trussoham. My background is archaeology in Sweden, especially uh, Viking Age on Gotland, small island in the Baltic Sea. Also the host of Digging Up Ancient Aliens, podcast where I watch Ancient Aliens and review it from an archaeological perspective. Very cool. Uh, thanks for being here with us, Frederick. Ross isn't here today. Uh, he's caught up in something right now, but... Uh... I think we're going to have a good time with Frederick here because we are talking about the movie uh, Atlantis. What's the subtitle? Disney's Atlantis is how I knew it. The Lost Empire. Atlantis, The Lost Empire from 2001. Um, so Atlantis isn't about ancient aliens, but you host a podcast about ancient aliens. And that's we had you on for this one specifically for that reason. So if people aren't aware, I guess we're going to discuss the crossover between Atlantis and ancient aliens, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of crossover. And we will revisit our old friend, the Graham Hancock, I think, later on in our discussion. It'll have to and come up. So <laughs> it will be interesting. Uh, so, Frederick, would you be able to provide a summary of this movie in case our listeners haven't watched it? Yeah, so Atlantis, The Lost Empire, is a thrilling and action-packed adventure that follows Milo Tatch, a young, ambitious cartographer and linguist who has dreamed about following in the steps of his grandfather, who wore piked helmets and uh, had even a little colonial shrine almost in his uh, basement. But he is hunting for Atlantis, but he's laughed out of the establishment, but uh, found a, finds a rich, um, rich sponsor for an excavation. So they set out in a steampunk-inspired uh, submarine, uh, meets the Leviathans, and finally, after a lot of adventures where everybody dies, find Atlantis, where apparently they speak some sort of proto-language uh, or sub-language they call. I almost spit out my drink because I have been reading Blavatsky and Steiner a lot for preparation for another thing. And they talk about sub-races. So I thought I heard sub-races in a... Disney movie and it just got darker, a lot darker suddenly. <laughs> but um, there he meet a wonderful girl who um, survived uh, the the end of Atlantis because everybody there li lives for thousands of years, but uh, age enough to be age appropriate to the leading character uh, as a romantic interest. And um, they discovered that they can understand each other because all languages come from the Atlantic, Atlantean language. And 
Then he learned that they have lost their way. So he, as a white man, has to come in and educate them on their own culture. <laughs> as you know, you do, uh, of course. And uh, so he managed to learn how they can use their lost technology and all of that. From there, it goes on because one of the people in his team was apparently a evil guy that just want to come there and steal their energy crystals to get unlimited power up on top and then they fight a lot and the movie ends basically Uh, that's pretty much what happened. I've never seen this movie before as a child. I think I was 16 when this came out. So I think that's kind of a sweet spot for not caring about Disney movies. Uh, this is the first time I'd seen this movie and I was like, somehow I never put it together. Like as an archeologist, I know all the Graham Hancock stuff, all the, all the bad stuff about Atlantis. And I just never put it together that (laughs) Disney made a movie about an archeological conspiracy theory. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. They wanted to get into the more young adult section. So as you noticed, it was more action scenes and not any songs traditional Disney movies. That's true. That is weird about it, right? A different approach with more action. So I was in the proper age. I was maybe 10, 11 when it was released. So, you know, that type of film resonated with me. And I know a lot of other archaeologists in my age love this movie, but it has a darker legacy. It's not really... The super racist, but uh, it was heavily inspired by Edgar Cayce's uh, Casey's writings instead of uh, the traditionals um, like Blavatsky or um, Ignatius Donnelly. I used to read Edgar Casey and his I read his book on Atlantis. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard of this guy, so we're going to have to get into that. Uh, Before we get into those uh, details, let's start with the more pedantic stuff. Uh, So we always start by nitpicking the the inaccuracies. Just to give you a sense of how pedantic we get here, I've got a couple to start with. Um, They have a a cook named Cookie in in their team. Uh, At some point, he makes a Caesar salad. Caesar salad was invented in 1924, but the movie takes place in 1914. So yes. there is an anachronism for you. <laughs> um, what was the one other one I had here? Oh, Cookie also mentions the four food groups, uh, but the four food groups are an American uh, recommendation that existed, I think, between 1952 and ni- 1956 and 1992. Mm. And now they switched to the food pyramid. And then after that, the the my plate or something. During World War II, I think it was the seven food groups. Uh, so he's got the wrong number of food groups for the time period. Well, doesn't he also say beans, whiskey? Was it beans? Oh, those are the four food groups. Yeah, yeah beans, beans whiskey, bacon, yes. lard. <laughs> yes, that's what it well, is, yeah. So, uh, does anybody else have any other inaccuracies? Yeah, uh, there was going to be a lot of inaccuracies because it's <laughs> called Atlantis. As a Scandinavian with Viking, uh, specialist in Viking, the runes in the beginning is all wrong. It's Anglo-Saxon runes, but mm. if you would transcribe <laughs> that type of language, it w- wouldn't just line up as perfectly as it does for Milo there. Yeah, so that's something that bothered me that it was modern english in the ninth century or whatever it was supposed to come from i have a note here that just says the languages make no fucking sense 
Well, it makes no sense also that they know every language because he asked them, like, do you speak this? Do you speak French? Do you speak? And there's like, yes, yes, yes. They said, mm. oh, there must be a root language. So they speak every language, but then they weren't able to um, decipher their ancient language, but he was able to. Yeah. And that's so everybody. Annoying. So everybody was living during the time of the catastrophe. <laughs> we saw that in the opening scenes that the little girl is the older girl that he then gets in love mm -hmm. with so they should remember how to read their own language or <laughs> did it fall yeah. much earlier or they got busy just i don't know doing other things forgetting how to read it feels <laughs> yeah like but they should be they able would... to figure it out the same way that we we figure out ancient languages now yeah i thought it was a little strange how like usually the myth of Atlantis is that the Atlantean people were so advanced and so perfect a civilization. Uh, and that's why they became the progenitors of every other civilization. But in this movie, the Atlanteans, like their power source, as far as I can tell, just sort of fell into their lap and they didn't really understand it. It was just a magic crystal that gave them all this power. Hmm. And it, they said it has a mind of its own. So like they they didn't have any agency in their own um civilization in the formation of their own civilization and like as you said they've been alive for a thousand years but they forgot how to read uh they could never figure out how to run all those machines like and then once again it has to be the white guy that comes in and like teaches them how to read their own <laughs> language and use their own vehicles uh, it was just so strange like uh to turn that that typical atlantis narrative on its head and say the people were advanced but like they had no part in that it was just something that happened to them yeah and especially when they show that they use all this technology in the beginning and then just <laughs> forgot how to do it yeah somewhere <laughs> along the way it felt a little bit shoehorned in that they just needed to forget it somehow but the writers wasn't that clever in finding a solution for it. Well, they fell into some cliched traps with it. Well, maybe we should start off by talking about the myth of Atlantis. I think we've talked about Atlantis in another episode at least once before, right? Probably. Yeah, you did it in 10,000 BC. I just finished that yeah. episode a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. so I <laughs> have your <laughs> discussion quite fresh uh, on it. <laughs> Uh, well, I think a lot of people, I mean, I know this because I teach a class in uh, archaeology and popular culture, a lot of people don't know that Atlantis wasn't a real place and that archaeologists aren't looking for it. Uh, so maybe, well, uh, Frederick, do you want to, well, not r real archaeologists aren't looking for it. Well, I was just going to say, if you watch it, the Discovery, but... yeah, but if you watch Discovery channels, not knowing how fake a lot of their stuff is, they archaeologists are looking for it well yeah that's yeah. i mean that's why people think it's a real place because our our media tells people that it is a real place but it's not yeah. and we have good reason to not try to look for it um frederick do you want to uh, i assume you know a little bit about the the myth of atlantis do you want to fill uh, our listeners in if they don't know why we're not looking for atlantis so sure atlantis was the um brain child of uh, Plato, the Greek philosopher that I think most people are familiar with, and he put it in his Socratic dialogues. And he used Atlantis as a sort of uh, plot device to describe the perfect civilization and what happens when they 
clash with another one. And he's building upon his earlier book, The Republic. So in um, Atlantis is mentioned in two books, Timaeus and Cretas. And it takes place after they had their discussion in The Republic, where Socrates talked to his students that, well, these things didn't take place. Any of them, Plato isn't, you know, transcribing literal uh, meetings from back then, but uh, more using famous names to uh, as characters in his uh, stories. But um, basically, in Timaeus and Cretas, he wants to have an example from his students about the perfect society. And I don't remember the name of the one who uh, sacrificed Cretas, but uh, one of the students tells, I know that Cretas has an excellent example of this, to, you know, shift focus to this poor guy who then stands up and just happened to tell the story about Atlantis that he heard from his father that heard it from his grandfather who heard it from his father who heard it from a sage in Egypt who heard it from an Egyptian priest. So, you know, it's the long way to Platon. Just place it so long back and then he uses it to describe what happens to the perfect society when it becomes corrupt and how a society that used his ideas from the Republic would be able to uh, defeat this empire, even if in his story then the gods come down and just smite the shit out of Atlantis and drowns it for reasons not really known, because he ends mid-sentence when Zeus is planning with his other gods how to destroy Atlantis. So that's the short origin of the Atlantis myth. And uh, one of the most interesting things to me is that like, people who want to believe that Atlantis is real will say, well, Plato said it was literally real. He he told in his story that <laughs> this guy from Egypt told it, and we have this game of telephone. He said it was real, yeah. uh, but we don't have any historical or archaeological evidence for anything related to Atlantis before Plato. And then everything that comes back, comes after Plato, is basically referencing Plato. So it's pretty yeah. strong evidence that he's the guy that made it up in the first place. Yeah, and it's interesting that none of the Greek historians that basically deals with how great Athens was, uh, I forgot one of their names, but Herodotus, for example, who's a little mm -hmm. bit earlier than Plato, never mentioned Atlantis, and the ones after him never mentioned Atlantis, nor the Egyptians, the Sumerians, nobody else mentioned Atlantis as anything else than, you know, referring to Platon's work as, you know, this fictional place. And it's not until the 17th, 16th century uh, where we start to get, um, you know, um, new accounts. But, uh, you know, the, the idea that Plato says uh, Atlantis was real is like, you know, the Tolkien says nothing that Lord of the Rings is made up. And if you read in the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, you learn that, oh, this will tell the story on the hobbits and their history. And nobody says that, oh, Fellowship of the Ring, that's real place, you know. Uh, Midgard is uh, where shit happens way in the past. That's a similar uh, storytelling myth. And then... 
So the modern myth, as I understand it, can largely be traced back to uh, Ignatius Donnelly, who you already mentioned, who wrote a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Yeah, but he uh, he's the source of uh, the more modern. Um, yeah. Modern, but you already in the 1600s started to get ideas from especially the Spaniards, similar to El Dorado and... Um, was other lost city there. There's a bunch of them in South America, especially. Uh, but the Spaniards brought up um, Atlantis to show that there might be more riches. They used it a little bit as, we can come here, find the civilization before us, we sponsor our expedition kind of way. But I'm totally blanking on the original name because of that. Lopez <laughs> uh, de Gomorra. Historia General de las Indias in 1552. Uh, he claims that there's no reason to dispute the island of Atlantis is a real place and that it's located basically in uh, uh, the Caribbean islands. The Caribbean mm. islands. That was 1552? Yeah, 1552. You can't blame them at that point because they, they're still discovering. No, but that's the, the first wide, right? point where we get Atlantis as a real place. Other than Plato? Yeah. Right. Hmm. Is it, it's in the Caribbean that they, the ancient alien people say that they found those, um, that street of Atlantis right under the water? Uh, that's not, ancient alien has it too, but that's mainly Hancock's idea and he builds on uh. Uh, Casey. Casey was the first to suggest Atlantis was in uh, Bimini Island, for example, the Bimini Road. Uh-huh. Right. Hmm. And he did that Especially because he thought there would be a lot of treasure there. So he got, Casey actually got hired to find the treasure because he was psychic. But uh, <laughs> so he goes to the Bimini Islands and uh, tells, oh, if you dig there, you will find the treasure. But of course, they don't find treasure. So he made up the, oh, but you wanted the treasure. I can't find it. You won't find it if you really want it. That's not how uh... my psychic power <laughs> If you're doing it for greed, then it doesn't work. Then you can't. (laughs) It is interesting how the original myth of Atlantis is all about uh, hubris. The the country was destroyed because they were too arrogant or something like that. And now Mm. the modern uh, mythology building around it is all about greed and colonialism and trying to find gold. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, shifted a little bit. Ignatius Donnelly was a bit more... using it as a representation for the America, that if they yeah. didn't start to, you know, not mm. be as hubris and stuff, it would uh, become as Atlantis, even if he had a lot of pseudo, uh, pseudo-scientific um, um, ideas into his narrative. And then, of course, Blavatsky and uh, Steiner took that and you started to run into the more esoteric sphere with Atlantis and we get the Sobraces, Lemuria, Mu, and all the other lost civilizations, and also some quite um, racist ideas from there. The Sobraces and you know all the races evolved separate from each other, and all of that. Yeah, so that's uh, that's how. See, the problem with the whole Graham Hancock thing now is that the 
archaeologists who all recognize this say, well, there's racism sort of in the foundations of this mythology. Hmm. And all the followers of Graham Hancock are like, well, I'm not a racist and he's not saying anything explicitly racist. And then that causes a reaction, I think, in people. They're like, I'm not a racist. And the archaeologists are saying the thing I believe in is racist. And I think that turns a lot of people against archaeology. So hmm. I think when we talk about how there's racism in this, it's really worth being really careful to try and understand how the racism is built into the mythology from the foundations of it. And even though it's not really explicitly said today, it's still there and it still has an effect. I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's written in a different era. Of course, they will have different ideas and things like that. Just because you read the text doesn't mean that you're a racist. Just because you believe in Atlantis doesn't mean that you're a racist. But you have to deal with the fact that it's racist theories. For example, uh, Rudolf Steiner, who wrote a lot about Atlantis and inspired a lot of other authors on um, anthroposophy and how they approach uh, Atlantis and this mix between magic and science. He had a lot influence over how, for example, Nazi Germany saw on race. Doesn't mean if you re go to, oh, what school did he make? <laughs> <laughs> um, blanking but um, when you talk about his text doesn't mean that you're immediately a Nazi or connected to Nazis but you have to deal with his legacy that he believed that races were separate and had separate uh, value within this society same with Blavatsky also a little bit different races and Ignatius Donnelly who are for the time Ignatius was quite uh, progressive. He believed in women's right to vote. He believed that uh, people of color should be free and that uh, Native American had a right to their lands, but he still had this idea that uh, people of color had, you know, different types of skull, uh, thicker skulls that made them not, you know, they couldn't learn on the same level as the white man who was supposed to be of on top and be the governor but uh, you have to deal with this legacy before you take the atlantis myth and run away with it and especially when you run away with it to the hyper diffusion part that they usually end up within yeah i think we've talked about hyper diffusionism before too uh so hyper diffusionism is this idea that there is one original civilization and all other civilizations descend from it uh so that's this is Graham Hancock's idea, and uh, mm. he's not a, he, it's, he's not the originator of it. It's an idea that goes back like 100 years before him. But um, this idea that the Atlanteans were the first civilization and that they spread all around the world and took their culture and technology with them and spawned all the other civilizations like the, the Mayans or the Egyptians or... Uh, you know, disregarding all the crazy time distances <laughs> between these civilizations, right? But um, it's not a it's not a like a bad idea initially. Like cultural diffusion does exist in archaeology, mm. and we can see the spread of cultures and ideas. Uh, but it's that hyper diffusionism where 
you try and trace every single civilization back to one original civilization where we don't have evidence for that. It, it seems like a lot of different civilizations arose independently and were not related to each other initially. So, um, again, it's not it's not a crazy line of thinking. It just turns out to have been wrong. It hasn't been borne out by the evidence archaeologically. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really an idea that we use to explain the rise of uh, things in reality and what they tend to do is mix in mythology that again is heavily influenced from the 15 1600s uh, for example uh, Quetzalcoatl being white is one of those spanish myths that originates from Demendieta in the 1500s when they get to Mesoamerica and all of that so um, you have to it's important to know where these ideas come from and then maybe acknowledge them and then go from there, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, maybe from there we want to move to Graham Hancock. Is it time to talk about him specifically? <laughs> I don't know very much about him. I've refused to watch the shows. I've watched the first episode with my class and I can't, can't bring myself to watch the rest. I think I need to pirate it if I'm going to watch it so that Netflix doesn't <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, secret. get the, the views. Yeah. No, but we can... Uh, I've actually seen the whole series. I had more problem with that one than Ancient Aliens, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stefan Milo on YouTube did a really good breakdown of it, so I've... I've watched a lot of content discussing it, but I I can't bring myself to watch the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are rough, especially he's so aggressive in them. And uh, that's the thing, right from the first episode. Like I know that's his attitude, but just to come out and just say archaeologists are so arrogant, they won't listen to me. Like I don't know, man. <laughs> Sounds like you're pretty arrogant to claim that you know better than an entire field. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how archaeologists could be that arrogant. <laughs> what is his background? Like, if he's what a is journalist, he? yeah, he oh. wrote some journalistic pieces in the early '90s, and then started to get into this uh, esoteric ideas and uh, pseudo history uh, later. Right. One of the things I didn't know about him until uh, recently is I, I don't remember whose video I was watching, but. Uh, apparently he's got some he he follows some sort of strange new wave religion uh which apparently influences a lot of the things he's talking about which i guess is not surprising since there's so much of that tied into the myth of atlantis yeah that's i think that's something we tend to miss i know that we are good at pointing out that the material he usually uses is racist which we already covered a little bit but as Dr. Yeb Card, uh, the author of Spook Archaeology, for example, discuss in his uh, article uh, America Before as a Paranormal Charter, is that we usually don't acknowledge that Hancock isn't trying to be an archaeologist. That's not his goal, that's not his, you know, what he dreams to be or a historian. He wants to be a mix between science and magic. Newton, something like that, Goethe, um, mm. others like that. He wants to mix anthroposophy and theosophy into a scientific approach. So just uh, meeting him with material culture, material evidence won't really work because that is a misunderstanding is 
entire goal in a sense. So you're right, he wants to bring in anthroposophy and magic. That's his whole approach to it. He doesn't really show it in his um, in his uh, TV series. They seem to have cut out a lot of these esoteric ideas to get more, you know, documentary mm-hmm. history feeling. So he's almost a little bit misquoted by his editor team in a sense. Uh, but he's he wants to bring in magic. That's how he knows because, you know, people, Casey and others could see back in the time. That's, you know, something he wants to show is true paranormal things. Hmm. So one of the things that I always wonder about people on Ancient Aliens or uh, people like Graham Hancock is whether they really believe what they're saying. Yes, me too. Yeah, me me too. I, I don't want to put too much on them, but I've as I watch, I got a feeling that some are a bit more genuine in their interest. They have their specific feel that they are pseudo-experts in. Um, but um, then you have, for example, Giorgio Sokolos and David Childress who write about everything and everything they find is true and nothing really puts together and they contradict themselves all the time, episode from episode. So they they might be more towards, you know, maybe they don't really believe, maybe they are just edited out of context, but it's hard to say. Van Daniken has admitted by accident in an interview back in the yeah. 70s that he <laughs> has taken some artistic liberties with uh, his uh, scientific materials and things like that. So again, um, not sure if he's really a believer or more want to sell books in that sense. I'm pretty convinced that for Von Daniken, whether or not he believes is much less important than how much money he makes. I, I'm sure that he'll say whatever he wants, whatever he needs to say to make money. Yeah, basically. If yeah. you want, you can spend uh, 10,000 euro and spend an entire week in Egypt with him, plus room and board. <laughs> <laughs> also, I've always wondered where they get a lot of this stuff from. It seems to me that they just make make it up. Like, do they just sit in a room and talk and talk, you know, <laughs> shoot the shit and then come up with the craziest idea they can? It, There's no basis for this stuff, right? It depends. Um, some of them, for example, Van Daniken, he probably makes up some parts. Same with Zacharias um, uh, Sitchen, he who translated a bunch of ancient texts without having any documented experience of uh, ancient Sumerians and his translation often go against Sumerian uh, dictionaries written by themselves so it makes you wonder a little bit uh, how much he uh, really knew but um, some comes from these old sources the Spaniards in the 1500s um, uh, Helena Blavatsky is usually used she is a bit more alien and the Steiner's writings, Casey, those are three names that if you want to be into this, you have to have read. Uh, they have But even then, idea. those only give you like the starting point, right? <laughs> yeah, like they only then, give you some, then they elaborate, right? Yeah, so they use the, the Rudolf Steiner's approach to mix magic and uh, science. And then you look at things and you try to find what kind of match and doesn't match you just ignore Uh, but 
yeah, they find the little things that are fishing and they just build on that and they, they then they cite each other. Sometimes it's hard to right. find the original source for something because they're just <laughs> referencing each other all the time. Yeah, which happens in science too, but hopefully it came started <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hmm. But some things probably made up other things old sources other things it's a mixed bag so to say <laughs> depends on the <laughs> author maybe we can talk a little bit about the relationship between science and pseudoscience because it's usually presented in a really black and white way like there's science and there's pseudoscience and the science is right and the pseudoscience is wrong hmm. But Kim, as you say, like science isn't perfect. We we have a lot of this circular citing where you have these little bubbles uh, presenting the same idea without you know external criticism of it. Um, and we also have, you know, Graham Hancock puts archaeologists in this this difficult position by claiming that we are ignoring him or that we're trying to shut him down. And then no matter how we interact with him, either we ignore him or we say that he's wrong. He's like, see, they're doing it. I, it it's true. It's a conspiracy <laughs> against me, right? And so we end up in this difficult position. So um, what do we think we as like the scientific or the archaeological community, how do you think we should be addressing this? Because I think a lot of the ways we do it, I mean, I've been listening to, um, uh, not listening, I've been following uh, Flint Dibble's uh, Twitter feed about uh, criticizing ancient aliens, or ancient apocalypse, Graham Hancock's show. And he's been uh, one of the most vocal. There's rumors that maybe Joe Rogan is going to have him on mm. to debate Graham Hancock, which I don't think a debate helps anything. Do you remember that Bill Nye and... Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in a debate, each side thinks they win, so I don't. I don't think there's any point in that. But like, do you think debating or fighting against these people is actually an effective tool, or do, should we find a better way to communicate? I think the best way is strong science education and outreach, and to also put money into making interesting science documentaries and trying to just flood the market with that, so that. You know, people are because there's a lot of people who, you know, they may not have, you know, a science background. They're not uh, scientifically literate. Uh, what am I trying to say? Um, literate? Yes, literate. And uh, sorry, <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> um, and that's perfectly fine. You know, like not everybody can be a scientist. Not everybody can study that. Right. So when they're watching these shows and they're being they're really interested and they're really cool and it everybody kind of wants to believe in magic in some way right hmm. and all this cool stuff and then it's on discovery channel and it's it's packaged like this real respectable thing people are not are gonna believe it or at least not know why they can't believe it if we do things and package it and push it in the same aspect um then we might start to win especially if we start to get to kids young right so give them the tools to be able to decipher what's real and what's not real even without understanding like having a big basis in science yeah I critical think, thinking skills i guess i think that's nailing it pretty much that we need to engage more with media and you know pitch and write tv companies uh, wish for these type of things and show with our money what we want to see because it's not hard mm -hmm. to make archaeology exciting for most people because 
when you speak with people, oh, an archaeologist, I wanted to be that when I was young. People have a, yeah. you know, <laughs> reflective, uh, you know, they they find it interesting. And when you go to museum, you, everybody gets stuck and they ponder a little bit on their past. It's a good part of human nature, but we need to reach out to TV companies more and become more engaged in the production part of these type of documentaries to, you know, take the area back from the, you know, more fringe ideas. But also when we engage that we engage them properly, I'm not sure Flint will do a, I respect him as a science communicator, but this idea with sitting with Graham in the same room, thinking that he will be able to talk about real archaeology is a bit of uh, wishful thinking from him because Graham will just go in attack mode and then he just end up trying to defend his position instead. And if he succeeds, mm-hmm. Graham will just shift to astronomy or geology or something where you know he is not really home or just go esoteric on him, which... They mm-hmm. all might not be as fluent in as Hancock, which means that, you know, he will be able to use that later in his season two of Ancient Ap- Apocalypse instead. Um, yeah. I think we need to understand where they come from and just be online and just engage with people uh, friendly yep. and, you know, just acknowledge that we won't change the hardcore believers. What we want to change are, you know, the ones who got interested now, who never heard about this fringe idea before, saw Ancient Apocalypse and started to go on YouTube and, you know, try to find out more. We need to, you know, rank higher in the Google searches and all of that to get them the real yeah. science. So when they go to look for it, they can actually find it yeah. and understand it. Like we had to take it out of the academic jargon too. One thing that I think will be an issue if we even, if, you know, if we can get stuff like this going is that in a debates like situation, the scientist is never going to be as confident in what they're saying no. as the pseudoscientist, right? We're like a real scientist is always going to say, well, we think and we support and the evidence suggests, right? Um, where someone else is going to say it is this way. I know it's this way. Yeah. And like a lot of people are going to just go with the confident person, believe that's... them that they, <laughs> they're saying it with such like gusto, right? Yeah, that's human nature. And as you said, Bill Nye, for example, on technically he won that debate. All his points yeah. were right. You know, if you look at it from academic uh, debate, Bill Nye won, of course, but from a public yeah. perspective. Bill Nye, he lost yeah. that. Uh, definitely, yeah. because people came out, oh, there are two sides to this issue, yeah. and they are equal. Yeah. yeah. So we were right all along, and then they go on and think the Earth is 6,000 years old, because that's what... Uh, uh, not... Uh, what's his name? <laughs> the guy he was debating? Yeah. Ken Ham. Ken Ham, yeah. Mm-hmm. Always uh, mixing up with He's the director Ray. of the Creation Museum, I think. Yeah, mix him up with Ray Comfort and the banana all the time uh, for some reason. (laughs) I'll link the banana video in the show notes if you haven't seen the banana video. Yeah, if you haven't seen the banana video, you should definitely go and watch the banana video. (laughs) I have not seen it, so I will watch it. Oh, just look up Ray Comfort banana after this. It'll be fun. Okay. (laughs) Um, 
I, I thought it was interesting uh, in the beginning of the movie Atlantis, which we are, by the way, reviewing, even though we have <laughs> mostly not said anything about it. Uh, the main character, Milo, the hero, is presented as one of these sort of fringe academics who is researching Atlantis and mm. all of the established academia <laughs> is ridiculing him. They're avoiding him. They, they're they trying to... Uh, they're trying to time out his his <laughs> yeah. responses so that so that he misses the deadline and they don't have to fund his research, um, which I found interesting because this is basically the same thing Graham Hancock is saying. Like Milo is Graham Hancock, except that he's, yeah. you know, a little more humble and friendly and likable than Graham Hancock <laughs> is. But it turns out that he's right. So I always wonder, like, we love these underdog stories, uh, but for movies about science or archaeology, like, it really doesn't work that way. Yeah. Like, it's never a single person making breakthroughs. It's always a team putting in work for years. So I wonder what kind of effect... I guess I don't really wonder what kind of effect this movie has in that way. It 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 fits right in with Graham Hancock's narrative, specifically about Atlantis. And I think this movie even though it's just a cartoon movie for kids uh, i think it must have a societal impact where it promotes this sort of anti-establishment science attitude and fosters a distrust in science yeah in a sense or rather it fosters the wrong idea on how science are made same with indiana jones for example he also the lone guy who's you know, making these amazing breakthroughs on his own, exploring, but that's not really how archaeology work or history work. It's more time in the books than less in the field. And mm -hmm. as you say, it's a team effort uh, for a long, long time. Uh, but I think it's, while it might give some, we could do this movie a bit better, for example, a team of researchers getting in together and finding Atlantis uh, through research. And it's a bit funny because during the era this takes place, Atlantis would be funded almost immediately by the <laughs> uh, scholars of that time, almost. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, it's a bit turned on their head. But there's, I think there's a way to make this movie work a bit better from a science perspective well first of all the people should be dead after eight thousand eight hundred <laughs> years that's a surprise usually we don't find living people in our archaeological ruins <laughs> oh that's pretty rare <laughs> um going back to the, talking about how we as archaeologists need to do outreach um it's worth pointing out that all of us are doing that right now, right? We we all host podcasts to mm. educate people about science. And, um, you know, th the types of archaeologists who are well known enough to actually be able to be in contact with TV or documentary producers, they all have the same stories. Like, you listen to Ken Fetter, Ken Fader or uh, David Anderson or Jason Colavito. They've all got these stories about being, uh, you know, consulting with documentary producers and being asked to say things that aren't true. Mm. And they're like, well, I'm not going to say things that aren't true. I'm going to say things that are, you know, in line with the science. Mm. And they're like, oh, that's okay. We'll just edit around it to make it sound like you're saying the <laughs> thing we want you to say. And they're like, 
why would you think I would be okay with that? Right. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like the, the, the entertainment industry doesn't understand that we actually care about the scientific facts. Yeah. And, and, you know, when people are in talks with, uh, you know, creating an archeological documentary or something, um, Everybody that I've ever heard who's ha talked about an experience like this always says that it's impossible, uh, you know, you have to be very careful because they always start with the narrative. Like they can't write a documentary without already knowing what they're going to say because there's too much risk in that. Mm. Mm. And so it's it's very dangerous as a professional archaeologist to talk to uh, documentaries because you never know what they're going to say. Even um, Matt Tosheri talked about this at uh, Liang Bua. He said that they have to be very careful about who they talk to because of how it uh, might get misconstrued. That was on the episode of uh, Cannibal in the Jungle, which was a uh, uh, Animal Planet mockumentary uh, that didn't say it was a mockumentary. So people believed it was true, right? And they yeah. interviewed real scientists for it who, according to Matt, didn't realize, I mean, they did so many interviews, they didn't realize what the, the project actually was going to be. Like they lied to them about what it was actually going to be. Hmm. So on the one hand, we have the danger of actually collaborating because we don't have any control over what's going to be said. On the other hand, we don't have any power to actually create our own narratives, uh, and then for those of us, like us in particular, who are making our own projects, we don't have the resources to have the reach of History Channel or Discovery Channel. Frederick, I don't know what your listenership numbers are, but I mean, ours are minuscule compared to the podcasts <laughs> I usually listen to, you know? Um, it, we are basically teaching a couple of, you know, university classes every episode, right? So... Uh, all of our listeners could fit in a lecture hall is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, so what are we supposed to do? Like we have regular jobs. I'm a grad student. I'm working on my own research. I don't have time or money to put into this project to get a bigger reach. Uh, maybe what's your experience as a podcaster? How do you reach people? Well, it's mostly through uh, Twitter so far. I think I've seen, but, um, as you said, it's hard to reach out, and I think your reference uh, to get back to what you talk about with Ken Fader, uh, Atlantis Disney tried to make a documentary to promote this movie and try to get uh, Ken Fader to appear on it. I think your what were you, you were referring uh, was in Science Friction from Brian Dunning, a uh, movie that you should go and see if you're interested in. Um, you know, educators quoted out to context, but to reach out, I'm not entirely sure it's to be where people are. I'm a bit on Reddit. I'm a little bit on Twitter, but also write to media, uh, radios, TV stations. Uh, Annalise Bear, for example, who uh, actually was a researcher for ancient aliens now uh, Egyptologist uh, <laughs> actually uh, cool. talk a little bit about how academies can try instead of you know teaching try to get into TV careers as researchers and writers mm -hmm. because we can affect a lot more from that point of view yeah. but there's not many of us who go into media in that sense if we are, it's as talking head experts or 
you know, uh, presenters on the show. But we need to be more, you know, behind the scenes operating too. So if students who might be listening feel interested in media, I would recommend, you know, trying to get into the media as a science literate writer and researcher, because I think there we can make the best change. And of course, with our wallets, you know, finance good TV productions like Time Team or uh, people that do real education and not so much ancient apocalypse and things like that. Hmm. So what you're saying is that we have to tell people about our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard it helps. <laughs> okay. We're so bad at that. <laughs> and um, also go to, you know, Skeptic Conference, ACF Conference, uh, QED, if you're a European, is a brilliant conference. And they usually have excellent speakers. Uh, Skeptics in the pub is usually also an initiative that I do enjoy, that you can reach out to different uh, people and come and talk mm. often often quite small but they have some online skeptics in the pub with a bit more reach so there's different way to also get yourself out there we should make like stickers or something josh that we hand out at conferences that students will put on their water bottles or binders or whatever that's actually a really great idea i think we should do that i made a poster but uh that doesn't make any sense why would you learn about a podcast from a poster <laughs> but that video cassette like the one that you made a poster that yeah. would be a really cool sticker i'd put that on my stuff okay we'll do that okay here's a little easter egg did you guys see the coelacanths in the movie atlantis which we are no reviewing? i missed it the what uh early in the um er early in the movie where milo meets his uh mystery funder whoever that guy's name was the uh, eccentric old guy yeah uh they meet in what his sort of secret lair full of strange artifacts and he has a big uh, fish aquarium with coelacanths in it uh you know what a coelacanth is these uh they call them living fossils mm -hmm. they thought they were extinct um yeah yeah yeah, they, they only knew them from fossils up until the 1930s, so they thought it was an extinct, an ancient fish, until a fisherman caught one, I think, in the Indian Ocean in the mm -hmm. 1930s, and since then they've discovered that there are populations of them that are still alive today. Uh, mm -hmm. But the movie's set in 1914, so at the time, nobody knew that the coelacanth <laughs> was alive, or science didn't know that the coelacanth was alive. Uh, and they're, they're so specific, like these, the drawing of them is instantly recognizable as a coelacanth. Mm -hmm. hmm. So I don't think this is a mistake. I think this is a, a little Easter egg saying this guy is so well connected that he knew about this fish before <laughs> science knew about this fish. <laughs> and uh, to get back to the movie that we're here reviewing, what I found <laughs> <laughs> refreshing was that it was not a Greek Atlantis. It was mm -hmm. a more neutral... Uh, you know, can be any civilization type of Atlantis that they're building on. So that approach was quite uh, refreshing, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is funny that Atlantis would be depicted as Greek, considering it's supposed to be the progenitor <laughs> of all civilizations, and also it's explicitly, according to Plato, 9,000 years before Plato's time, so... Yeah, but uh, the Greeks were, uh, you know, the best civilization in the world, according <laughs> to the Greeks. Mm. <laughs> and also the language that the Atlanteans speak, they actually made it up for the show. 
So it was costume. Is it? Um... Yeah, it's a real made-up language uh, by the same guy. We've talked about a few movies where they do that. Mm-hmm. Same guy who made um, uh, the Klingon. Hmm. Mm. What's his name? Yeah. It's such a cool job to have. Like, oh, hey, what do you do? Oh, I make up fake languages for movies. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's easy or hard, though. But I'm oh, really it'd be bad. hard. Yeah. You, I would think you would have to have, like, a brain of a musician, right? Yeah. To make patterns, like, make it from scratch. Um, there's a couple of things they say in this movie, commenting on archaeology, which maybe we can dissect a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um Early on in their expedition, when they're looking at some of the, they're getting their first look at some of the ruins, Milo is looking at some carving, some big pillar, and he's just like very gingerly running his fingers over it and like analyzing it like a scientist. And then uh, he talks about how it must have been thousands of years, it must have taken thousands of years to carve, and then the the explosive expert comes in and blows it up so it turns into a bridge that they can go across, <laughs> and he says, thousands of years to carve, uh, and uh, thousands of years to carve, in, to carve in 10 seconds to turn it into a bridge or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's played for laughs, uh, but it's... It, uh, I think the implication is that it's wrong, but it's like not that wrong. Like they're the heroes, you know. <laughs> it's like that's okay. It's it's necessary uh, to to destroy this culture in pursuit of their goal. I guess I thought it was a good representation of the archaeology of the time. Uh, that's early true. Nineteen hundred. They still. Who was it that blew up the one of the pyramids in um, Mesoamerica? <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember, but they use dynamite to excavate pyramids, for example. So, yeah, yeah it's. <laughs> I thought oh. more of it as a commentary on, you know, archaeology of the time, in a sense. But, um, yeah, also this colonial idea that we see here that they have the right to, you know, destroy it because they are doing something important and need to get further. Mm-hmm. There's another quote later on from the. Um... Uh, the expedition leader, I don't remember his name, after the sort of big reveal that he's actually evil and he is out for this power source, which uh, wasn't that much of a twist, to be (laughs) honest. Um, He says to Milo, if you gave back every stolen artifact from a museum, you'd be left with an empty building. We're just providing a necessary service to the archaeological community, which uh, is... uh, I mean that's true. That that yeah. touches on a lot of the the you know issues of repatriation we're dealing with today. But I, I think that the uh, you know the logical conclusion of that is yes, we should have empty buildings. <laughs> uh, we should not have stolen artifacts, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we all can agree that um, when it was um, you know was a time where they did that. I would like to think that we are better now, but. Some cases, but others, there's still a lot of looting going on, unfortunately, in the, especially artifact trade community. I remember one of my professors saying that if you see an artifact from Switzerland, it's 100% stolen (laughs) due to the rules in auction houses in Switzerland. So, yeah, it's still going on, this idea that we take what's not really ours. Um, what are our final thoughts about the movie Atlantis? It was fine. Not my favorite cartoon that we've watched. 
Yeah, I thought it would be a lot worse, but uh, when it had a lot of, you know, bad ideas in it, it wasn't ancient alien level <laughs> bad, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, for being a Disney movie, five out of ten. Yeah, it was kind of boring. <laughs> I think it would have done better if there were songs. I thought for a Disney movie, the pacing was very weird. It starts off just so fast. He goes from the the lecture hall to the submarine in like 15 minutes or mm. something like that. And mm. then there's this long montage that just slogs while they're traveling with their convoy to the city of Atlantis. It just goes on forever, uh, you know, just driving these vehicles. And... Uh, yeah, for a Disney movie, I thought it was just very strange. Like, what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. Like, the, he's reading Iceland and Ireland in the runes. Like, change one of these runes, and it doesn't say Iceland. It says Ireland. But, like, they they didn't spell. They didn't use those words. That no. doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> How do you understand our language? Oh, our language is the progenitor language of all languages. So every language is inside our language. That's not how language works. That doesn't make any sense. This is so weird. It's just very hand wavy. Like, we don't need to explain how this works. It's just a kid's movie. Yeah, like, and it, that it was, everybody know, was, was very weird. Uh, on board killing everybody until... Uh, Lots uh, of death. Lots of death for a yeah. Disney movie. There's no blood, but yeah. Uh, yeah. lots of fiery explosions where you know people are inside these vehicles. <laughs> they start off with like an entire army and then their sub sinks and almost all of the army is immediately dead. Like thousands yeah. of people probably drowned. <laughs> well, and you're right. They didn't really care about killing off the entire population. They only stopped once they realized that the Thatch guy who they got and kind of, you know, attached to was going to stay. Then they're like, okay, well, let's not kill everybody. Or rather when uh, Commander Rourke, as his name was, was extra mean to him. Then they said, no, this is enough. Yeah. And then they are on his side all of a sudden. It was just strange bait and switch in the end. And then, you know, they're taking all the gold. They go up to the surface and uh, everybody died. And they just probably just melted all those artifacts and... <laughs> We never acknowledged this <laughs> in any <Yeah>. sense or way. <laughs> well, and then they each, when they go up, so that stays, yeah. but the rest of them go back to, you know, their lives and they each have a crystal, a glowing crystal. Mm. So they, like, they took that out of Atlantis, the life force. That's bad. But just small parts and they also got a whole uh, pile of gold that you could see behind them. Yeah, that too. <laughs> No, it mm. was a strange pacing, as you say. Yeah. And Leonard Nimoy was in it. Did you catch that? That's true, yeah. Leonard Nimoy was the the elderly king of the Atlanteans or something. Yeah. Isn't Ernest in it too? Uh, yeah, uh, Jim Varney was Cookie. He was great. Right. I loved his, uh, <laughs> his strange dialect. <laughs> yeah, Michael J. Fox was Milo. Touch, mm. Michael J. Fox. Yeah, lots of lots of big names in this one for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really tried to launch a new type of Disney movie with this. I think it didn't go too well. I think you have the Treasure Island in the same style and concept, yeah. and then mm. they went back to animations and singing, more or less. Yep. If it ain't broke, <laughs> why fix it? Mm. All right. Well. Uh... 
Thanks for being on this episode with us. It's very interesting. I feel like you do a lot of research, uh, much more than we normally do. So I'm going to have a lot of uh, authors and a lot of books and uh, things like that to put up in the show notes if anybody wants to follow up on anything we've been talking about. Where uh, can people find you? You have a podcast called Digging Up Ancient Aliens, I know, because I've been listening to that lately. Yeah, and if you go to diggingupangentaliens.com, you find all info uh, on all podcasts, trying to put things on YouTube, but I'm too lazy to do video, so (laughs) mostly audio. And um, yeah, diggingupangentaliens.com. I also, a bit sneakily, bought ancientapocalypse.net, where you can also find (laughs) 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 my stuff, um, if you want. So everybody go to ancientapocalypse.net so that the algorithm pulls that up (laughs) higher in the Google search results. Maybe it'll get it above ancientapocalypse. Exactly, that's the sneaky plan behind it. But they they didn't buy any domain for that series. So you can still get the .com, but it cost like $6,000, and I felt, nah, I don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for having me. It was exciting. Um, And... Fun to meet you after I've been listening to you for yeah, some time. Nice to meet you. <laughs> if you've been enjoying Screens of the Stone Age, get in touch with us. Follow us on Twitter at SOTSA underscore podcast and on Facebook at SOTSA podcast, or send us an email to Screens of the Stone Age at gmail.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca.